So banking sector cleanups are very technical, and I could understand how a story like this loses a lot of people. All told, it was estimated that the cleanup of the banking sector cost about $100 billion. And that money ultimately comes from Russian taxpayers. That's taxpayer money. The primary job of a successful autocrat is to manage those money flows. He doesn't want the Russian elite to think that there's someone out there who can give them a better deal in terms of allocation of the resources of the Russian taxpayer. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English language managing editor. I'm recording this on Friday, December 11th, and today's show is a journey well outside my wheelhouse into the magical land of Russian banking and monetary policy. Exciting stuff, right? Now, some of you might be thinking, or maybe this is just me projecting, that hey, banking and monetary policy is boring. And you need to be an expert to say anything of value about it. Well, one or both of those things might be true, but I've got two guests, expert guests on today's show, so that is some solace. The reason I picked this topic, I'm the one who picked it for today, is a recent investigative report Medusa released jointly with Proact, Proact, Project, and V-Times about corruption in Russia's banking system and among some banking regulators. If you follow Russia in the news, you're undoubtedly familiar with many of the feats and pitfalls of the Putin regime, administration, presidency, whatever you want to call it. Whether it's media censorship, a lack of overwhelming protections for the LGBTQ plus community, interventions abroad, and so on. But maybe you shy away from the stories about Russia's central bank, and currency, because my God, there are a lot of numbers and names and transactions and more to remember and interpret. If that describes you, you might be unaware or only vaguely aware that Russia's central bank printed an enormous sum of money over the past decade in a sweeping campaign to restructure the country's major banks and liquidate smaller failing financial institutions. Medusa and its partners spoke to sources and obtained testimony from witnesses who described major abuses of authority by banking executives and senior officials in the Deposit Insurance Agency, or DIA, a Russian state corporation responsible for various insolvency procedures. Essentially, based on what Medusa recovered, senior management at the DIA, working together with officials in the Federal Security Service, and figures connected to the oligarch Arkady Rotenberg were able to manipulate Russia's bailout process to make a lot of money in government contracts, preferential treatment, and even kickbacks. And that's just a few deals involving a couple of smaller banks. After several years in office, Russian central bank head, chairwoman, Elvira Nabiulina, was finally able to strip the DIA of its role in future bailouts And before long, the government was able to wrap up its banking sector reforms, albeit at a great cost. Now, unless you're part of this game with some money yourself at risk, it's hard to sink your teeth into a story like this, I think. Vladimir Putin 
doesn't take his shirt off. Nobody dances to punk rock in a church. There's not so much as a drop of military-grade poison. But the cleanup in Russia's banking sector matters. I would say, and what... When I zoom way out and stop thinking about like balance sheets or liquidity issues, the thing that's really apparent to me here is that ultimately at the end of the day, the Russians paid the price for a crisis that was generated by state policies. That's Stephanie Petrella, editor-in-chief of the BMB Russia and Ukraine bi-weekly newsletter and a fellow in the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Eurasia program. I asked her a bunch of what to me were highly technical questions about Russia's banking sanitations, as they're known, the bailouts. But I also unloaded a long-winded, meandering confession about not really understanding how big money works in Russia, despite also believing, and this is true, that it's the key to everything. I had a kind of like a grand question. It's no secret that this high finance and, and monetary policy and stuff is kind of outside my, my wheelhouse. But I've often heard among Russia analysts that stories rooted in high finance and, you know, big money, that they offer kind of the best, really the best insights into the nature of, of power and politics in Russia. And I wanted to know, I mean, like, how do you explain that to people? I assume that when you, when you approach people and tell them, you know, what you do, that's, it's, it's, there's the initial of, ooh, Russia, how exotic. But then if they know anything about Russia, they probably sense that they're, they're now, they realize they're talking to somebody who has kind of unique insights, because I do think that when it comes to this, this, these big money questions, it, there's something, I don't know, there's something like more material about it to me than the latest story about, you know, how Putin said something offensive. The money is like, that's what drives everything. How do you explain the relevance of big money in, in, in Russian politics? So banking sector cleanups are very technical, and I could understand how a story like this loses a lot of people. All told, it was estimated that the cleanup of the banking sector cost about $100 billion. And that money ultimately comes from Russian taxpayers. That's taxpayer money. It's, it's hard to not see the parallels between this situation and then the way that Russians today are paying for the cost of economic crises generated by the Kremlin's foreign policy via lower, lower living standards. So over the past decade, Living standards of Russians have declined because the government has been forced to adopt this fiscal fortress macroeconomic policy that insulates the country from external shocks like sanctions or a drop in oil prices. So the government has a balanced budget. They, they don't borrow very much at all. They have incredibly low public debt. But what this ultimately means is that they're not spending money that would make Russians better off. And so whereas Russians in 2013, say they made $100. Today, they're only making $89. And so this crisis that was generated by state policies, Russians are paying for it via lower living standards. And I think a really similar thing happened in the baking sector cleanup, which was that ultimately, it was a beneficial thing. Russia did have to clean up some of these bad banks that were not operating in depositors' interests. But the way they went about doing it for a little while by using these other larger banks to rehabilitate the smaller banks created this snowball effect and created additional problems that then had to be dealt with using taxpayer money. And Akritia is the biggest example of this. It cost the central bank about $8 billion to bail out that single bank, which wouldn't have grown so rapidly if it hadn't been for the previous sanitization policy. And so I think that that's 
one big theme that I see here that's really relevant to the way the political economy works in Russia today. So you remember that big, broad question that I played for you a few seconds ago. Well, I put the same one to Tom Adshead, the Director of Research at Macro Advisory Limited, an independent strategic advisory and macroanalytics firm. Tom has worked in the Russia-Eurasia region for the past 25 years, having trained originally as a Sovietologist. He told me that a good primer on how monetary and banking policy fits into political power in Russia is a 2011 book by Bruce Bueno de Mesquita and Alistair Smith called The Dictator's Handbook. You have an authoritarian ruler who takes over a country, let's say a, a generic African state that's making, that has some kind of natural resource. The ruler takes it over, basically this tax, this you know, somewhat limited economy is generating a certain amount of money every year. He the ruler of the state grabs you know those revenues has to allocate a certain amount of it to his his army to the security forces to keep him in power you know a certain minimal amount has to be allocated to the population to stop them revolting and the rest he can steal from, from himself and and, and 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 sort away in switzerland translate this into russia you have an authoritarian government authoritarian leader mr putin what mr putin has to do is I mean, he has really two constituencies. One is his elite and the other is his electorate. So he has to, you know, he's got, let's say, 35% of GDP that he can take as taxes. Some of it he has to spend back in terms of pensions, hospitals, schools, just keeping people happy, roads, uh, keeping the economy going. Some of it he has to spend to defend the country as a whole, and that's defence. Some of it he has to like spend on defending himself. That's let's say the internal security services, and you know, it's presumably at some point he's got to pay off his elite and you know, presumably himself. And the the kind of the skill and the balancing act of any authoritarian ruler is is managing the allocation of that money. So this is why the flows of funds are so important because the primary job of a successful autocrat is to manage those money flows. So, yes, I would say that managing monetary flows is almost the primary job of the president and the presidential administration. So they understand exactly who gets what, who gets paid what, who deserves what. There's you know, systems of both informal and, and formal bonus systems that can be that, that, that are allocated. You know, to some extent, the, the presidential administration took over from the, the Central Committee of the, the Communist Party. And the reason why you do this is that this is how you keep people in line. This is how you keep not just the very senior people, but the middle people and, and the lower people. This is how you you stop them rebelling against the system or kind of looking for another leader. And, you know, I'd say this is why it's important to understand it, because, you know, yes, Putin doesn't want the Russian electorate to start voting for someone else. But at the same time, he doesn't want the Russian elite to think that there's someone out there who can give them a better deal in terms of allocation of the resources of the Russian taxpayer.
Okay, so let's backtrack a bit. I was trying to rope you in, dear listeners, with some grand level analysis. That was what the, those first seg- couple of segments were supposed to be. But I skipped the granular stuff that matters when it comes to bank bailouts in Russia. Many of you out there, I think, I would be one of you, most likely, might be asking yourself right now, how does this shit actually work? I was hoping that you could explain to listeners in very general terms, people who are not kind of experts in the subject at all, how does the central bank approach regulation of the the banking sector? And I'm asking about Russia, but for all I know, this is the case everywhere. You can tell me. Because my impression, having translated this story that Medusa put out about the what have you, is that the options seem to be they can either liquidate a bank and declare it bankrupt and revoke its license and sell off pieces of it, break it up, I guess, or they can restructure it and bail it out. Are those the two options when it comes to this sort of thing? Or is that an oversimplification? So if we're talking about the banking sector cleanup in particular, there were three strategies actually that I think the central bank took. The first was that there were small banks that the central bank decided were, you know, had large holes in their balance sheets. And oftentimes they were banks that the central bank decided were not actually operating as banks, but rather they were simply fueling the the bank's owner's own business aspirations. So for those banks, the central bank simply revoked their license and in turn liquidated the bank. So in this situation, the depositors got paid back with deposit insurance money and the bank ceased to exist. The second option that the central bank went for between the years of 2013 and 2017 was to sanitize the banks by using a separate commercial bank to absorb the struggling bank. Is this the DIA, the thing you're mentioning, the deposit insurance agency? Yeah. So the way it worked was that the the DIA would go to the central bank and say, this bank is struggling and needs to be bailed out. And it's too big for us to simply pay off all the depositors. So why don't we have another commercial bank absorb this bank and we'll give that bank a preferential loan basically to fill the hole in the struggling bank's balance sheets. So this way they're trying to rehabilitate the banks that were facing liquidity crises. So the way this worked was the the bank that was rescuing the second one would receive a 10-year loan from the deposit insurance agency at a 0.5% interest rate. So basically, this is free money, and they use that to buy the struggling bank. And the idea is that then they fill the hole in the balance sheet and the problem gets resolved. That's not how it actually ended up working oftentimes, but that was the idea. And then the third option that the central bank used, and this was only after they created the Banking Sector Consolidation Fund in 2017, was that the central bank went in directly and basically nationalized the bank. So they would bail in the owner's assets in the bank and use government money to keep the bank running despite the hole in the balance sheet. So that way they didn't have to refund any depositors because the bank continued to operate as it had previously. It just now is state-owned. Did that reduce corruption? Because at least in from Medusa's reporting, it seems as though when the DIA was involving larger banks, that was where people started getting kickbacks and started kind of elbowing each other to get these preferential loans so they could shore up their own larger banks. And it seems as though getting rid of so many middlemen might have improved the 
the process or is, is that what ha- ended up happening or some of the corruption might have worked in the previous scheme where they used the larger banks to rehabilitate the short smaller ones the way that this worked was that the the larger bank that was rescuing the smaller one would get this 10-year loan from the deposit insurance agency for basically zero interest rates so free money to rescue the struggling bank but what ended up happening was that oftentimes these banks were used these loans were used by the larger banks to fuel their own expansions. So instead of putting the money towards fixing the hole in the smaller bank's balance sheet, they would finance their own projects, for instance, and buy more assets. Another problem that arose from this scheme was that a lot of times the larger banks would then dump their own bad assets into the smaller bank. And in that way, they're able to hide their own financial difficulties from regulators. And one thing that this led to was this rapid inorganic expansion of banks that then later had to be bailed out. So the key examples here are the the so-called garden ring banks like Akritia, Binbank, and then Bank. Those were the, the big examples of banks that grew really rapidly because of this financial rehabilitation scheme, but ended up not being stable themselves and then ended up having to be bailed out directly by the central bank and taken control of by the central bank. And so it's, it's a kind of feeding frenzy for these extremely low interest loans, but they still have to pay the money back. So is, is it just that they don't care if they're, they, maybe they think they won't be able to pay the money back or they know they will because they're, they're places to invest in? Like, is it a sure thing that when you get that low of an interest for 10 years that it's like, okay, whatever, I'll pay this back, no problem. Or are they taking a risk when they agree to borrow that money? I think that a lot of these banks were not necessarily making the most financially sound decisions. On one hand, it is if it's a 10-year loan and you get it with basically no interest rate and you invest it elsewhere, like pretty much anywhere else you invest it will have higher returns. So you are making money off of that. And by the time you have to pay it back, it's fine. But that being said, like there's a reason why a bank like Akritia had to be bailed out itself because it kept on absorbing these bad banks, didn't fix any of the problems in them, and was using the money that was intended to fill balance sheet holes to go purchase other assets. If you've actually read the Medusa report that is the basis for this episode of The Naked Pravda, you'll know that part of the story involves central bank chairwoman Elvira Nabeulina's struggles against the deposit insurance agency, which is headed by a man named Yuri Isayev, who enjoys particularly close ties to Russia's police and national security establishment. Tom Adshead explained how political clout like this works in Russia's banking system, and he says Sparebank CEO German Greff is key here. The presence of German Greff in Sparebank is, is terribly important because, again, he's someone who publicly has the, the, the trust of the president. And as the custodian of essentially the nation's savings, he's got you know, 60, 65% of retail deposits. When someone comes to him and says, you know, I'm best mates with the director of the FSB, you have to lend money to my crazy project. Greff has the political clout to go to either Putin or the right person in Putin's team and say, look, you have to tell this guy to stand down because, you know, I can't lend this money. This isn't my money. This is 
the money of barbishkas, this is the money of the population. You can't order me to do this. I don't care how, you know, how powerful you are. There's a power greater than you, which is the power of the credit and the currency. If you're a banker, you know, let's say a mid-sized bank, and someone turns up and says, I'm going to cause you problems if you don't lend me this money. I don't think you go to Nabulan. I think you go to your contacts either in the presidential administration or maybe in law enforcement. I mean, possibly Nabulan, but I think her job was more to shut down the bad banks than to protect the good banks. The, the good banks generally would have shareholders or connections or simply be clean enough. Tom also pointed out how Western sanctions against Russia in response to Moscow's annexation of Crimea helped stimulate the nation's subsequent reassessment of its banking system. It all becomes more problematic post-Crimea and post-sanctions. One of the interesting things that happened, actually, and again, this is an important part of the story, and I haven't got the full numbers, but what you had after Crimea, when you had bank sanctions on a number of Russian individuals and banks, basically what happened in the interbank market, in the interbank cross-border market, was that, I mean, there were only about three or four banks that were actually directly sanctioned. I think it's VTB, VEB, Spare, and Gazprom Bank. I think are the only four that actually said, you know, you can't lend money to these people. But what happened was that, is that a lot of Russian banks sort of below that, the sort of the number, let's say number six to number 20, they were funding themselves in the interbank market in London. So they were getting syndicated loans in London from groups of banks. So... You know, these would be three-year revolving credit lines, all with, you know, I mean, they were good borrowers. They were borrowers in good stead, and they paid very good interest rates. But basically what happened was in 2015, 2016, because of the sanctions against the big banks, the compliance department in, in the interbank market in London basically said, sorry, you know, you can't lend to any Russian banks, full stop, just stop. So even though the bankers in London were making good money on that, it was actually, you know, because Russian banks were kind of dodgy, they had to pay more to borrow. So that means good profits for the banks and good bonuses for the bankers who managed those, you know, who organized those, those loans. Their compliance departments basically said, sorry, you can't do that anymore. So an awful lot of banks suddenly had to repay hard currency loans from the London banking market in 2015, 2016. And, you know, this is quite a lot of money. It's like about $200 billion. At that point, it's roughly 20% of GDP. Suddenly, they have to repay all this money. And they found a way to do it. They were, the central bank helped them out. There's actually nothing particularly criminal here. It's just the central bank was actually doing a good job, and the bankers were, by and large, honest. But suddenly, you know, a number of the worst banks suddenly found that they, particularly at the same time, when if you borrowed money in let's in dollars from a UK bank and you are lending that money in dollars to let's say a Moscow bank based property developer and suddenly you know you have to pay back your hard currency loan okay you do that and maybe you get some funding from the central bank but at the same time your your Moscow bank based property developer is having problems because there's a general economic crisis no one wants to rent property you know, that nice office building that you've just built suddenly becomes less viable and you can't manage the debt service on it. So in, in the classic Warren Buffett statement, when the tide goes out, you see who's been swimming naked. 
when that funding dries up, then suddenly people start looking harder at the the asset side of the balance sheet, the loans that these banks had made. So is, is it fair to say then that, that one of the consequences of the Crimea sanctions is that it, it got Russia to clean up its banking sector? <laughs> I suppose it's a little ironic that this seems to have been a service to Russian monetary policy or banking policy. Yeah, I mean... It forced Russia to do some sensible things that actually, you know, the Russia wanted to do and that would maybe have been harder otherwise. I mean, and another example of that is import substitution in, in agriculture. You know, Russia was forced to invest in agriculture. Well, that was partly the result of Russian counter sanctions against the EU. But yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, it's like any sort of hard times, you know, that there are benefits from it. There are always benefits from it in retrospect. I mean, it's not things that you'd necessarily welcome Ex ante, but ex post, you know, they, they, they benefit. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we heard from Tom Adshead, the director of research at Macro Advisory Limited, an independent strategic advisory and macro analytics firm. And we heard from Stephanie Petrella, the editor in chief of BNB Russia and Ukraine, and a fellow in the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Eurasia program. I hope in this episode I managed to make this story a bit sexier than maybe you thought it was at first glance. As I said at the outset, this material is a bit dense, but it gets you close to the underbelly of real power in Russia, more so maybe than most reporting about the country and its visible political system. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa, our only English language show, and I hope you recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Honestly, go to the podcast thing, this website, the app, leave some stars, and write a, write a little thing, right? Go on there and say, you know, hey, what a wonderful human being that Kevin is. I'll, I'll enjoy that. There's, you'll, you, you'll achieve only good. Thanks for listening, and come back soon. Mm-hmm.